we come to chapter 21, verse 1, and we read this. And the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time which God had spoken to him. And Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God commanded him. Now Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, this is her quote, this is her quote, God has made me laugh and all who hear will laugh with me. She also said, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children for I have borne him a son in his old age. Isaac means laughter. And God chose the name for Isaac. So it's one thing for Sarah to say, wow, she laughed and I'm going to laugh. You're going to laugh. Everyone's going to laugh. And who could even believe that me, barren, past menstrual cycle, menopause, all those things. It's just totally, apart from impossibilities of God working in the miraculous, there's no way I can have these children. So who would have thought that I'd be nursing a child at 90 and that Abraham would have a son at 90? The son of promise, not Ishmael, which we've covered, of course, in detail previously. So here is the son of promise, Isaac, and it's laughter. He mean, his name means laughter, and she says, all those are going to laugh, and they're going to laugh with me. There's a joy level in the Lord. There's, a, there's an abundant life in the Lord that God wants us to have. And I think it's so important as far as of Christ that our disposition is one uh, that really the glass is half full. In other words, and really, as Danny even was praying, that the Spirit's overflowing from us, not just indwelling us, but overflowing. Not just being filled with the Spirit, but overflowing with the Spirit, like Jesus said in the Gospel of John, torrents of living water overflowing. I believe when people have a true conversion with faith in Jesus Christ, their disposition, no matter how it was prior to their coming to Christ, will shift toward a more optimistic positive perspective, not for the possibility of positive thinking like Norman Vincent Peale or something like that, or Zig Ziglar, Think and Grow Rich or something like that. I don't even know those books are around anymore, but it was always like positive, positive, like that way. No, no, no. We're talking about a disposition of joy and optimism because of the promises of God and the faithfulness of God to his people. And we've been talking about how God's promises from Genesis to Revelation have a universal application to believers. In other words, when we give our life to Christ and we're born again to the Holy Spirit, we pass from death to life, we become a new creation, that we have all these promises equally. In that sense, it's like the estate or a trust where everyone has an equal ownership. In other words, it's not like, and I've mentioned this recently, but like say, for example, Harvest Crusade, the 30th anniversary at Anaheim there, Anaheim, the big A. I drove by there going up to Samaritan's person. I thought, wow, all those people here, 30 years of the Harvest Crusade. But let's take Saturday night when all the people came forward, thousands, in making decisions. And those that were born of the Spirit of God, born again, that moment as they received Christ, or we can even say when, the, uh, when they do the children's discipleship with Operation Shoebox, because they give the boxes and they do like a follow-up discipleship, The Greatest Journey. I did my journey. I did got my coloring book. I still have it at home when I was up there. And they graduate. So when those kids graduate and they, they get their sort of certification of finishing the Samaritan's Purse thing, they, that they have a confession of faith and there's baptisms and different things based upon the cultures where the people are at and how they do it. So 
let's say X amount of kids truly were born again in the spirit through the greatest journey with Samaritan's Purse in Morovia, which is the video we watched, an amazing video, two-minute video. Or the Harvest Crusade, people going forward of all ages. The promises were equal for everybody. There's an equality of the promises. No one, no one with a shoebox has any greater promise than someone else with a shoebox. They might have slightly better gifts in their shoebox than the other shoebox, but the promises of God by which they're motivated in being sent to them, the promises are equal. Now, we have different sets of gifts for different purposes. Don't confuse that. Greg Laurie has an equipping to fill stadiums. And he, he can fight the spiritual battle that goes with it. He can keep his wits when it's chaos all around him. And he's equipped to do it. Pastor Chuck had an equipping to be an incredible pastor and like an apostle of thousands of churches. But he'd be the first to tell you when he's here, he did not have the equipping to be an evangelist. So he brought in different people on Monday nights, Randy Ziegler and others, to be the evangelist on Monday nights. That's what he did. So the gift dispersion is like two minus, five minus, or one minus. The gift dispersion can vary from person to person. But don't confuse that with the promises of God. Because the promises of God are equal. That's very important to understand. But then we talked about last week how they become personal for us. And of course, for Sarah, it's personal that she's going to nurse a child at 90. So much joy. God's heart is to bless. God's heart is joy. God's heart is to build up and to encourage. Now, we have tribulation, the human experience, that will test us. And it prepares us for the next dimension. But we know that the joy of the Lord is not subject to external experiences or what's going on in my body or in my world. The joy of the Lord supersedes and trumps as the highest authority over everything else that goes on in our life. It's like Romans 8 says, what can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus? Famine, peril, sword? No. So here in this chapter 21, we see the promise. The promise is really a promise that took on all these kaleidoscope variations and all brought back to Sarah's world with the child Isaac fulfilled. Now, in Hebrews chapter 6, we're told concerning God and his promises, and I've mentioned this verse a couple of times, I'm going to mention it again, but God swears by himself because we make an, a promise based upon an oath. So like in a court of law, you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. And so the hand on the Bible, there is an oath to establish a credibility. We talked about being established a couple weeks ago and what that means, that a promise is established, that God is, with the covenant of the rainbow, that God established the covenant. We talked about a business being established. The longer it is, the more credible it is. In particular with this promise, because this promise is the gateway to Jesus Christ coming to be our Savior on planet Earth and dying on the cross for our sins. This promise is directly connected to our salvation in Jesus Christ. It's very important to understand that. This is the shadow of things to come, but this is the way the King is coming. There in Hebrews, God says that he swears by himself, which is really interesting. But concerning Abraham, it says he swore by himself that he would do this. God never lies. God has lied to him as no darkness at all. So the New Testament, looking back on this again, tells us that he swears by himself because his word is golden. It's the integrity of his word. We, we know certain men and women whose word is very uh, valid and credible. Like it tells us, you know, let your yes be yes, your no be no. Jesus taught that in the Sermon on the Mount. The book of James tells us that. But the Lord's word is absolute, and we can build everything of our life upon his promises. 
for he swears by himself, and there's no greater entity that one could swear by. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? The Lord swears by himself that we would know and trust him and his promises because it's he who is promising it. And he, he promises, and the story of this is the proof of his promises. The New Testament tells us that you can always trust his word and that you know he's always going to want to comfort us and minister to us based upon his promises. It's very important. So now that the promise is fulfilled, a couple things we can take note tonight. We see here in verse 1 and 2 where he says at the set time. Now, we've talked about God keeping his word, but this is a set time. This gets my attention, and I think it's worth noting. It's very important to us. He says here, at the set time which God has spoken. So we see that, you know, he did just as he said he would. He did just as he has spoken in verse 1. But it says she conceived and bore the son in Abraham's old age at the set time which God had spoken to him. We've touched on this, but we've not made it a key point in our journey through these, this promise these last few weeks. But God's timing is always right on time with his promises. Again, universally, we know that he makes promises in the human experience that are immutable and unchangeable. The coming of Jesus Christ. All those prophecies. All those prophecies. Timing is exactly right. With the prophecy of Daniel, we know it's 490 years till Messiah is cut off. And when Jesus came into Jerusalem that day on the colt of a donkey, he said, if you'd only known this your day, it was to the exact day of a prophecy from 500 years prior, from the decree of the temple to be rebuilt. Centuries before, you could count the day on their calendar and know that the day Jesus came to Jerusalem on the donkey's colt, the only day he really accepted public accolade and praise for who he is as the Messiah, was exactly the day that the prophet Daniel spoke it would be. Exactly. Now, in Galatians, we're told that in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, under the law to redeem us from the curse of the law. That is, God's law, which we can't save ourselves by keeping it. So, we're told by the Holy Spirit that of all the, you know, Jesus came at the perfect time. When I first went in the ministry, Brian Broderson gave me the book, Bible Almanac. I've shared this a few times. And I read an encyclopedia. Basically what I did, just an encyclopedia Bible stuff, Bible Almanac. It's not in print anymore. But it talked about this in the fullness of time. And it had a couple uh, chapters devoted to understanding that when Jesus came, it was the exact perfect time. From the Roman conquest, the Roman roads that would open the way for the apostles to take the gospel to the world in one generation. And it really puts forth how the world was totally prepared and ready, geopolitically and all those things, for Jesus Christ to come. The night he was born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem was the perfect time by God's timing for the Messiah, the King of the Jews, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, come in the world. It was perfect timing in the fullness of time. Now, we already saw early on in Genesis where God said, your children are going to be descendants, they're going to be slaves for centuries, but then they'll come to this promised land. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So even the deliverance of the Hebrews, the Jews, out of their slavery in Egypt had a perfect timing where it was a time for them to be a nation and come into the land, and it was the perfect time for judgment upon the people who had been given over to their sins 
in the land. So we see his perfect timing in judgment. We see his perfect timing in deliverance for nations and people. We see his perfect timing for Jesus coming. We see his perfect timing for coming into Jerusalem on the colt of a donkey to the day. And the last example I'll give you is when Lazarus died and they sent messengers to Jesus and he said, okay, well, we'll, we'll be there. And, and when he got there, both Mary and Martha said, if you'd only been here yesterday, essentially, if you'd only been on time. And what to me is fascinating about John chapter 11 and that story is I think that's something we all relate to. Where we say, Lord, if you'd only, man, what are you waiting for? Why aren't you moving on this? Why aren't you answering this prayer right now? Why don't we have this baby? It's been two decades. How long are you going to make us wait for the son of promise? And we can lose heart sometimes with God's timing. And we can be like Mary and Martha and just say, in our grief, in our heartaches, and say, Lord, if you'd only been on time. But Jesus was on time. Jesus is always on time. Driving to Charlottesville, Virginia in 1988 with my wife Jennifer when she was pregnant with Jesse. We'd gone back to Virginia to be on the 700 Club. Skip Isaac from Albuquerque met us there. And because I'd lived in Charlottesville where University of Virginia is, we were going to go visit there. So Jennifer and I were driving. It was a Sunday morning. I'll never forget going through Richmond and listening to Bible teaching. And there's no Bible teaching quite like on the radio in the South. I mean, it's, it's Bible preaching. It's good old fundamental Bible preaching. And I'll never forget that message. Driving through Richmond on this 64 beltway that goes around Richmond. And this preacher from the South kept saying, God is always right on time. And he gave all the examples in the human experience. We can say, God, why weren't you here? Why didn't you come in time here? God is always on time. And this text tells us tonight and affirms us and reminds us tonight that God's timing is always right on time for the right job, for the right place to live, for the right roommates, for the right college, for the right admittance, for the right healing when there's going to be healing, for the comfort when there's not going to be healing. God is always right on time. Jesus Christ is never late in our life. The Holy Spirit never comes late in our life. And that's why the Bible tells us to wait upon the Lord. And those that wait upon the Lord will not lose strength, but they shall mount up with wings like an eagle, and they will run and not grow weary. That's the heart of the Lord. And sometimes that waiting process for the promises is so critical to make us ready for the fullness of the promises. And we might say, oh, Lord, that Ishmael would stand before you. And God's like, no, it's not Ishmael. I'm going to be right on time. At the set time, there's a set time when you and I are going to step into eternity. And essentially, as you walk in the will of the Lord, you're unstoppable. We've been talking about that as well. You're like David charging Goliath. You're simply unstoppable in God's will. As we abide in the Lord and we seek to be faithful in things he has for us, we're, we're, we're going there. But there's a set time. David said in Psalm 139, the days were fashioned for him, as yet there was none of them, but they're fashioned for us. And like sand in an hourglass, we know what's beneath us, but we don't know what's above us. But the sense that time does have an ending, that time is not guaranteed. Because the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises in our life is when we stood on the grave 
and we hear the words of Jesus saying to us, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, shall live forevermore. And we're just going to whisper or moan or nod our head or raise our hand. But like Mary and Martha, we're going to say, yes, Lord, I believe. We might give a, we might give a shout, too. You just don't know. But I've said this many times, that our greatest moment of faith is when we breathe our last. Because that's the payoff. God ensures that of all of his promises to us, that we let him work in and through our life as we obey him and trust him and live for him. Of all the promises, the payoff promise is when he comes for us as the good shepherd to take us through the valley of shadow of death. And for some of us, we think, well, that's way down the road. And it might be. But it's always right around the corner. It's always right around the corner. Because of all the times, it's right on time, is your last breath. And when all the promises come to head and the payoff is for you, it's on your last breath. So don't think that you've missed the promises. Don't think that your best day of serving the Lord is behind you. Don't think that the greatest steps of faith are behind you. No, I'm telling you, your greatest step of faith is your last breath. And it's, it's just believing in Jesus for who he is. It's not a doing. It's not a doing. It's a believing. It's a believing. Like when Melissa Henning Camp got off her deathbed from cancer out of her coma and said to her husband, Jeremy Camp, I am healed. She didn't earn that testimony. She simply declared it when Jesus came for her in that hospital room so many years ago in San Diego. And I am an eyewitness of that moment. But until we have that last day, that appointed day, where our faith and the promises are at maximum level, we have this journey. And maybe we got the job, maybe we didn't get the job. Maybe we got the promotion, maybe we didn't get the promotion. Maybe you're way more qualified than someone else, but they get the promotion because grandpa's the boss or something. Or there are so many injustices. You know, just having finished Proverbs in my morning devotion this last month, I read a proverb chapter a day, just finished it up yesterday. Man, God says a lot about justice and injustices in Proverbs as well as his law. There's just a lot of injustice. There's a lot of things that are unfair. Just make sure you're the person that is, stands up for truth, justice, and righteousness, and what's good. But don't lose heart on the promises. Don't give up on the promises. Don't think the promises aren't there for you, because they are there for you. God is faithful. And in the set time, they come to pass. His prayer, his answer to our prayers is yes, no, or wait. So what we're really talking about here is Yes and wait, because no promise truly is a no. He might say no to things, it's a permanent no, and that's good for you. Promises are yes and amen. So we shouldn't lose heart because things haven't gone, because we've been doing the right thing, it doesn't work out. Look at Joseph in Egypt. He did the right thing in forgiving his brothers. Then Potiphar's wife falsely accuses him, and he still does the right thing. In the prison for two years, he's forgotten after he interprets the dream of of the butler. And in one day, he went from the prison to the palace. In one day, he went from being like the steward of the prison to being the number two man in Egypt with the signet ring of Pharaoh. In the appointed time, look what Joseph had to go through to be ready to be entrusted with that power of that signet ring in that ancient empire of Egypt. 
what he had to be able to forgive people of, what he had to learn about administration and justice and faithfulness. And then with much like Abraham and Sarah with no reason to believe it's ever going to change, and one day he gets the call up to the palace, and he's the second in command. And he saves the nation of Egypt. He pleases his boss, and he saves his own nation of people, the Hebrews. God's always right on time. He'd be saying, wait, and wait on the Lord. Then we also see Abraham's obedience, which would be easy to overlook, but in the context here, I think it's really important to consider it. He called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. That's what he's told to call him. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. In thinking about being entrusted with great promises and a legacy of a great life of faith and amazing things that Abraham is for all humanity and particularly those of faith in Jesus Christ. And he's going to be tested next week. In Genesis 22, we've got the big test coming, Abraham and Isaac. It's coming. It's like a mountaintop we're moving toward. But what I like about this simple verse here in the middle of this little section here is that he did what was obvious. He called his son Isaac. He gave him the name he's supposed to, much like John the Baptist. His name is John. Remember he wrote it? His name is John. Oh, why don't we call him a different name? His name is John. And he called him Isaac, and he circumcised him on the eighth day. Here's the point. In the most basic acts of obedience, he did exactly what he knew to do, that God wanted him to do, in the situation. Now, the son of promise is God bringing about. Obviously, he had intimacy with his wife, and that was part of the plan, unlike the virgin birth uh, and all that with Mary. But they've been trying to come together to have a child for decades. But really, to see this, this record of simple obedience, he called the son we're supposed to be called, and he circumcised on the eighth day. Like, well, of course he did. That's what we all do. It's almost like if you're a good Christian, you go to church, you know, you, you put something in the offering basket, uh, you pray for missionaries. Like, yeah, but like, sometimes people don't do what's really obvious to do. There's a lot of people who call themselves Christians, and they forsake the assembly of the brethren. They don't fellowship. They don't trust God with their finances. They don't share their faith. There's a lot of things that naturally happen with Christians abiding in Christ that don't happen in a lot of people's lives who say they're Christians. They don't forgive. There's a lot of Christians who don't forgive other people. There's a lot of people confessing Christ that don't obey Christ. And that's why Jesus said, you don't come to me and say, Lord, Lord. I'll say, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. There's lots of people confessing Jesus Christ in the world, but do we see the heart for the Lord? Do we see the hunger for his word? Do we see the faithfulness to the gospel? Do we see the integrity of his word? Do we see fellowship? Do we see uh, forgiveness? Do we see love? Do we see grace? Do we see mercy? Because those are things that are the obvious basic things that God would work in our life as we give our hearts to Christ. I mean, they got saved on the day of Pentecost, and then immediately they were, they were gathering the apostles' doctrine, the word of God, the breaking of bread, fellowship, and prayer. So sometimes the most obvious things that God would have for us as people of promise, we don't see them at all. We see convenient Christianity or self-serving Christianity. Christ didn't die on the cross for convenience, and he sure didn't rise from the grave for self-serving 
the resurrected Jesus Christ is a death sentence in our flesh and our pride to stir us for the things of the kingdom. As an example, a servant's not greater than his master. So Abraham doing these things, calling Isaac Isaac and circumcising on the eighth day, it reminds us that what we know what to do when we're waiting on the Lord, we should do. It reminds us that basic obedience is basic obedience. And you, you cannot find in the life of any great men and women use of the Lord in church history or Old Testament history as well, you won't find greatness without obedience in the basic things. If you see macro greatness by human terms or even macro greatness by God's term, you will not see that without obedience in the basic simple stuff. No one gets dumb luck and wins the lottery with the Lord in the sense of God doing something really special in their life. You might have a talking donkey try and stop you from your madness, like Balaam. But it is about faithfulness in little things. And faithfulness in little things proceeds entrustment of greater things. What did Jesus say? To him who has, more will be given. But to him who doesn't even have, even what he has will be taken from them. And that comes down to obedience. Before there was Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa at 3800 South Fairview Avenue with the Jesus movement and what we're, this church is an extension of decades later, there's Pastor Chuck just faithfully teaching small congregations in Tucson and Prescott and other places like that. Going to Bible college, working it safely to provide for his family while pastoring small churches in the Foursquare movement. What's your point? My point is this. I think it's a reminder to us, and to me personally, so to all of us, that we need to obey God in the obvious things, to tell the truth, to be women and men of integrity, to think of others, to esteem others better than ourselves, to just think of others, to have compassion on others, to err in grace, not legalism, but to err in grace, to be merciful, to, to show mercy and to receive mercy. That's what the Lord would have for us. That's who we need to be. That's obedience. It's amazing how many people call themselves Christians and their lives don't match up at all with anything consistent with Jesus Christ. And so calling him Isaac and circumcised on the eighth day, that's consistency. That's doing the things that you know to do because when you're waiting on the Lord, sometimes you don't know what to do at all. You're waiting to figure out which college to go to. So you apply for this college, this college, that college, and they all cost money, and you're waiting on the Lord. You're looking for a job, and you just can't go in and meet the boss and shake hands and pass in a resume anymore. When Jeremy tried to get a job up in Boise, he went to one of the firms, and the, the secretary said, you're a nice man, but I cannot receive your application because we have a, a, you know, a middleman, a broker that receives all the job apps and um, you have to go through that. So you, it's all these algorithms to see if you say the right words on your resume, and then you get a call, in most cases, especially better jobs or higher-end jobs, and then you got to go through this, and you get another one, and then you get maybe a, a FaceTime interview, and then they might call you in. I watched my son go through this process. And it's progressive, and then you're down to one of the final four people to be the recruiter for Grand Canyon University or whatever, or you're one of the two people to get the job working for Corey in Denver, Colorado for the new Hyundai uh, branch in, in Denver. But before you get that face-to-face, you got to go all this stuff, algorithms. You know, it's crazy. But if you're faithful in the little things, you can trust God in the big things. And if he opens that door for you, he opens that door. God knows. God knows. 
Joseph obeyed the Lord in Potiphar's house when, his wife, when Potiphar's wife came after him. He did the right thing. He forgave his brothers. He obeyed the Lord and did the right thing in the prison. Esther did the right thing when Uncle Mordecai said, look, God's going to deliver his people, whether it comes from you or somewhere else, someone else, but it would seem you're the person. She said, you're right. If I live, I live. I die, I die, but I'm going in. See, we do the right thing, and we obey the Lord, and we grow. Our resume of character speaks for itself. And we're waiting on the Lord, and we put this here, and we put that there, and this is here, and that's there, and all these things out of our control. This court case, that goes on and on and on. Whenever I pray for people in the church with legal things, I just, I feel sick. I think, I'm not even personally involved, and I talk to them, I feel sick. And, you know, this delay, this injunction, this thing and that thing, and these lawyers, and, and I was talking to someone last week, and they just said it dealt with a, 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 a trust and this person ripped off about 150000 but when they talked with the lawyers and they got to all this, they said by the time the lawyers are done with it, there'll be like 20000 left divided between four adult siblings. It's not going to be worth the battle. Better off just let it go. It'll take three years, and you'll all end up with a very small amount of money. God knows we do the right thing. Do the right thing. Obey in what you know to obey. Tell the truth. Be character of integrity. Love people. Serve people. Lose yourself in service to people. Be that person. See the hurting around us and care and have empathy. Call your kid Isaac because that's what God told you to do. The poor and the rich have this in common. The Lord made them both. Proverbs 22.1. Just to have the heart and to be that person to obey. Because what did God say to Saul through Samuel to obey is better than to sacrifice. And a lot of people do their little religious sacrifices that are self-serving and do not obey. This tells us we need to obey. Within the promises of waiting and fulfilling and they come to pass, you know, some people can't handle prosperity. God finally blesses them with the promises and they just walk away from the Lord. Some people can't handle Adversity, and some people can't handle prosperity. And I've seen it in both cases in 30 years of being a pastor. I'd like to think we could say, like Paul, I've learned to abound, and I've learned to abase, and I've learned I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Man, in all that you don't know, when you're waiting for the sign of promise, do the right thing, obey, and then when the promise comes to pass, Follow through and don't let it change who you are, but be faithful to God, how God's prepared you to be and who he's prepared you to be in all that time. Because the journey prepares us for the destination, even the fulfillment of promises that affect our life while we're alive in time, space, and matter. Love hopes all things. Love believes all things. Love bears all things. And that's something we've got to keep in mind with all the people around us. Don't lose heart. And the last thing we see is the joy and the fulfillment of the promise where Sarah said in verse 6, and God has made me laugh. And he did. He made her laugh. It's pretty. <laughs> he made her laugh. The sun means laughter. Like the promises of God. See, God catches the wise in their own craftiness. And not many noble, not many wise are called, but the Lord uses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And there's just something humorous about when God does stuff, when he sends a talking donkey, when he puts a coin in the mouth of a fish. There's just, God has a great sense of humor. 
Look at your pastor. Like, God has a great sense of humor. And the Calvary Chapel movement's a testimony of how God redeems men and redeems women. The history of the church is a testimony of God's sense of humor and just how personal he is in our lives. Coming back to where we started tonight, that the promises of God are meant to put in as a disposition of joy and optimism. The Bible says happy is the person who trusts in the Lord, but happiness is more like based upon external circumstances. But joy, like the laughter of Sarah, is just based upon that God is who he is, he's faithful, he keeps his promises, and I'm just laughing right now. That's what that is. It's not because everything's going right. Joy is not the result of, hey, everything's going right, money's in the bank, everything's good, couldn't be better, equals joy, like a chalkboard equation in a college classroom. No. Jesus equals joy. And then let every other human experience just bow down to that. In studying the history of persecuted believers recently, I'm reminded how so many persecuted believers, particularly in the Iron Curtain between the rise of the Soviets, 1920, 21, 22, Bolsheviks and all that in the USSR, and then the World War II, everything leading up to the persecution within the realm of Eastern Europe at that time and Russia, and then even the persecution of believers under Hitler as he came more and more to power in the mid-30s, then World War II and just all that happened there. And then, of course, again, the Iron Curtain after that, the true Iron Curtain in the post-World War II era. And all those people sent off to all these camps, and even all the believers sent off to camps all over China right now, all those believers in North Korea in camps, what the Russians called the gulags back in the day. But if you read about those pastors and their wives and their children and their children's children and how they prospered with the Lord in those times, it's quite inspiring. And what you find in studying them and letting their words speak for themselves, that they counted it all joy. In many cases, in very difficult, excruciating, difficult circumstances, they counted it all joy. Because the joy of the Lord is our strength. And Jesus said, I came that you might have life and that more abundantly. And so we laugh. We laugh with Sarah because she had a baby at 90 and nursed a baby at 90. We laugh. It's crazy. And we can laugh in all the promises that come through her to Israel, the nation, to Jesus, our Savior, and his coming kingdom to come again. We can laugh because he's going to sound his trumpet in the sky and we'll be translated from glory to glory. He's coming. We laugh because all that we see that can discourage us, what we see in time, space, and matter, he'll make it right when he comes in glory. We laugh because injustices will pass away like the, like the old earth that will pass away that we live on right now. We laugh because God's going to do great things. And eyes not seen nor ear heard those incredible things he's prepared for those who love him and his appearing. So we laugh. Like Sarah, we laugh because the promise goes way beyond her child. It goes to every promise in the Bible that we have this night in Jesus' name. And we have joy. And God wants us to live with joy, not dour and sour. Yes, we're reverent. Yes, we have emotion for difficult things and arduous things. But you know, we have joy. And the world around us will be one to Christ by when they see the joy of Christ and the life of Christ coming forth from our brokenness with this treasure in earthen vessels, the joy of the Lord.